We now return to our interview with Russell Bentley, an interview dialogue from Donetsk, Ukraine, as he brings light into darkness. Enjoy. What can you tell us about, you know, your your knowledge of what is currently going on in these NATO-Russian negotiations, even though we've pretty much not been in a negotiating stance? I'm talking about the West. Instead, NATO is claiming that all countries have the right to join NATO or not, and completely disregarding Russia's right to protect its borders, just as we would if there were some type of threat on our Canadian or South Mexican border uh, and such. So can you speak and clarify from your perspective, what is the Russian position and what do you expect is going to occur over the coming weeks? Certainly, NATO forces can be motivated into that area, which would make it a much more difficult military assignment for the Russians to do what they want to do. So I know you're of the inclination that something is going to happen in the next few weeks. Can you elaborate on on that as well? Well, the first thing to understand is that Russia has been more than patient, more than tolerant for eight years. I mean, imagine if the Palestinians had heavy artillery, had heavy, you know, missile, cruise missiles, you know, had an army that was equal to the Israeli army and were threatening Israel with an equal army and they were flying flags with swastikas on them. People, you know, they talk about the Holocaust, you know, they say six million Jews were killed by the German Nazis. Well, 25 million Russians were killed by the German Nazis. So when some dude flies a Nazi flag literally on the Russian border, you know, that's a, that's a visceral attack. You know, that's the most deadly threat that there is. I mean, when the German Nazis came to Russia, they came here to exterminate the population. And that's basically what the Ukrainian army was planning to do to the, the Russian people of Donbass in 2014, 2015, when they made their first assault here. They got crushed fortunately, by our heroic defenders, of which I was one. And fortunately, with a little help from our friends back then, I can say it's pretty well-known fact that the Russians did help us with some rockets and artillery that basically annihilated some major combat groups of the Ukrainian army. But the Russians never invaded. We get humanitarian aid from Russia. We get some advice, some intelligence, but there's no Russian military units operating in Ukraine right now, in spite of the fact that Ukraine, the U.S., NATO, and Western media have been ceaselessly pushing the lie that the Russians had invaded Ukraine. Well, now, after eight years, after 15,000 people being killed, and it's interesting to note, too, According to the UN report, they themselves have documented the fact that 80% of the civilians that have been killed in this war have been killed by the Ukrainian army shooting at our people here in the Donetsk Republic. So it's not a question of, oh, they kill one of ours and we kill one of theirs. Of course, civilians always get killed in war. The Ukrainian army likes to hide their artillery and their mortars and their tanks in between the civilians on their side of the front line, which is also Russian civilians, but just under Ukrainian control. So the Ukraine army is attacking us. Yeah, the demonization of Russia is apparent 
throughout a number of shows that we've done. In our limited time, too, I, I just want to make sure you do turn to the issue of what you expect will be unfolding in the next week or two with respect to the Russian... The, okay, it might not be the next week or two, but my personal prediction... And of course, I could be wrong, but what I think and what a lot of people that know a lot more than me here think is that not the next week or two, but before the end of March, Russia is not going to invade Ukraine. It's going to liberate Ukraine from its foreign occupiers and basically masters. And what's going to happen, I think, is that Russia and Belarusia are going to come in all along the front all along the border, all the way to Kiev. And, you know, they're basically going to take the teeth out of the Ukrainian army. They'll make an announcement a few hours before, just like, like you know, like Bush did with Iraq. You know, they're going to say, I've ordered the Russian troops to come in to peacefully defend the people of Donbass and to denazify and denatoize the country of Ukraine. We're not going to shoot at anybody that doesn't shoot at us, but anybody that shoots at us from whatever nation, we will destroy. The intelligence is, according to even surveys that the Russian army has done with its own soldiers, internal surveys, 80% of the Ukrainian army doesn't want to fight. They'll surrender, you know, they'll get out of their tanks and artillery and walk away without firing a shot. 20%, maybe 20% will fight. There's uh, ISIS, jihadis here. There's hardcore neo-Nazis, genuine neo-Nazis. There's war criminals whose uh, crimes have been documented, who, if they're captured, will spend the rest of their lives in a Russian or Ukrainian prison doing hard, hard time. And those guys will fight. Maybe 20% will fight. 80% will not fight. And the Russians, even if 100% of the Ukraine army fought, it's still going to be a weekend affair. They'll be in Kiev on Monday. And once they do that, it's going to be good for all the people of Ukraine under their protection. And it's going to be to secure the frontline borders of the Russian Federation. They cannot, it's like, you know, you can't let a rattlesnake sit on your front doorstep. You know, you can't leave a mad dog in your front yard. And that's what the Russians have right now. They've tried every diplomatic possible scheme that there is, and it hasn't worked at all. They've been patient. You know, they've had false flags done against them. They've had sanctions beyond compare. And at this point, they're like, okay, we can't tolerate any more of this. And they've given, in the last couple of weeks, they gave the U.S. and the NATO and the OSCE, which is basically European Union, they gave them an opportunity to understand the red line and to take a step back. And the idiots in the West have not done that. And so now they're going to get a spanking and it's going to be very hard. And Lavrov, foreign minister of Russia and, and Vladimir Putin himself, they've come straight out and said it. And they said, you know, if you guys don't take this seriously, if you don't start taking action on this, we're going to take military measures. And they're not kidding. They're not bluffing. They have the ability to do it. And they're getting ready to do it. You know, they're not kidding around and they're not going to say, OK, well, we'll wait till next year and see if you guys do something. It's going to come pretty quick and it's going to be a hard, hard whipping on uh, anybody that tries to resist them. You know? They have every right to do it. Yeah. You know, and I, I do believe that all countries have national security rights. 
I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it seems with respect to Russia, what they would most like to see is an honoring of the Donetsk and Luhansk areas, the stopping of, of hostilities against that area, including the threats to Crimea as well. But I'm not so sure that politically they want to actually invade as much as what create a buffer zone and creates peace and stability and safety for the eastern Russian-speaking Donbass area. Bro, listen to me. The thing is, it does no good for them to just protect Donbass and Crimea. You understand? It is an existential threat to have NATO soldiers. NATO has this year, this year they have scheduled nine different military exercises, NATO troops in Ukraine. And I'm talking 65,000 NATO troops. Russia, of course, has a million now Russian citizens with Russian passports, of which I have one, in Donetsk. And they will protect the Russian citizens here. But that's not their major concern. Their major concern is that they have genuine enemies, NATO enemies in Ukraine, which shares a border with NATO. They're up as close to Russia as they can get. That's the thing that Russia cannot tolerate. That's the reason that they are coming in. It's not about Donbass anymore. It's about they have to get NATO and the Nazis out of Ukraine. And that's the whole point of this. And they're coming, bro. They're coming. Well, let me ask you this, Russell, because I want to remind our listeners that we are visiting with former U.S. Army enlistee Russell Bentley, born here in in Texas and in the Donbass since 2014. He is on the front. He is informationally in a place where he is accessing all sorts of inputs that most of us are not privy to. So it is really helpful to get your perspective I think what we lack in this country, which is very clear, is any kind of oppositional point of view to U.S. foreign policy. And I wanted to make sure we made time for share. If people want more information, Russell, on articles that you've written that I've I've looked at and seen the links and well put together investigative journalist pieces, how can they access information about that as well as the MH17, which without any amount of time lapse was immediately blamed on the Russian separatists. Can you share with us some some of your... I have uh, two websites, RussellTexasBentley.com and RussellTexasBentley.info. My YouTube channel is my main avenue right now for communicating to the rest of the world. That's uh, Russell Bentley on YouTube. Also, I have VContact, which is like the Russian version of Facebook. I was on Facebook for 12 years. They deleted my account without any warning or excuse. I had uh, 5,000 friends, a couple of thousand followers beyond that. And just one day I woke up and it was gone. So VContact, which is a less censored and pretty interesting social media platform, that's VK or VContact, is where I have a social media right now. My YouTube, my human aid fund is called Donbass Humanitarian Aid. It's a 501c3 charity registered in the United States. The And you can find that uh, by just Googling Donbass Humanitarian Aid or the website address is www.donbasshumaid.com. Uh, we do... Uh, A lot of missions with orphanages, kindergartens, schools, 
uh, big families with lots of kids, people who've been injured or impacted, their houses hit by shelling, stuff like that. Also, I do occasionally uh, radio shows with uh, guys like Pedro. I worked with Jeff Rents, uh, Frank Marino out of WABC in New York City. Uh, I'll be on uh, their shows here in the next couple of days, and uh, you can always catch me there. It's interesting. You can find a lot of good and bad stuff about me just by Googling my name, uh, Russell Bentley. A lot of stuff will come up. I've been in BBC, has done hit pieces on me. Uh, the Independent, The Guardian, Texas Monthly did a big article on me. There's a lot of stuff out there. I've been uh, pretty busy as a political activist for over the seven years that I've been here. And so you can find your information, read up both sides, the good and bad, make your own decision. Thank you for that. First of all, I just wanted to say that I looked at the Texas Monthly Report, and it's interesting that we have largely lost our critical thinking abilities as a country, that the way that you're attacked in that particular piece, it attacks your position as being congruent with Russia's position rather than looking at the substance of your position and the substance of the Russian indications. And, mm-hmm. and it's been turned into in our in our whole landscape of media is just mudslinging without the suggestion of demanding and seeking evidentiary proof of claims and let the chips fall where they will based on that type of approach like you might see in a properly run courtroom right you have both sides presenting their side of the story and people evaluating them accordingly and our media and our representations it's one side of this judicial dichotomy being presented and nothing from the other side. And I think that your representation in the Texas Monthly is is an example of that. You know, your media will tell you every day, oh, this is what the Russians have done to you. No, the Russians gave your government, your rulers, every chance to back off. You know, they offered to cooperate for the last 30 years since the end of the Soviet Union. And all that U.S. and NATO has ever done was slap them in the face, take advantage of them, lie to them, and rip them off and trick them every way they could. And now Russia is powerful enough. It is more powerful. The Russian military budget is $50 billion a year. The U.S. military budget is $700 billion a year. And the Russian military can whip ass on on the U.S. military and NATO anytime they want. They have a stronger military than the U.S. and NATO combined right now. And they will if they have to. Very good. I did want to just indicate that Russia also has some two or three military bases outside the former Soviet Union Republic. And the U.S. has some 700 to 800 military bases in foreign lands. So that also contradicts the narrative that you've been speaking against. So the coup, the February coup of 2014, it was followed by this neo-Nazi-led repression throughout the East. And the reason I'm interested in reporting this again and again over on different shows is the fact that following the February 2014 coup, just a few months later, was a horrific Odessa massacre of May 2nd, 2014. And it was shortly after the Odessa massacre of May 2nd of 2014, led by these far right-wing neo-Nazi types, that the Donetsk referendum of May the 11th, 2014, following the May 2nd Odessa massacre and the Lugansk 
referendum of May the 11th, 2014. So I just wanted to get your interpretation, the interpretation being projected by the dominant narrative in the United States is that Russia has led the uprising and is the main reason for the Donetsk uprising of the Donetsk people and the Lugansk people and the Crimean people. I would argue that no, it's in defense of these neo-Nazi attacks that started occurring shortly after John Brennan actually arrived in the Ukraine following the coup. That Joe Biden, too. Biden that, was there, too. He right. was there right after Maidan, then he was back again. Somewhere I have it. There's a timeline. He's, he came to Ukraine like seven times. Biden was the guy that called all the shots. Let me ask the question in a different way, because I think this is important for American listeners to consider. Uh-huh. If there had not been that wide scale repression by these neo-Nazi groups at orders, I suspect from the U.S., you know, Biden, Brennan, and all, I agree with that. Would there have been the separatist movement? In other words, the coup itself, was it enough of an instigation or was it the repression that immediately followed? How would you describe that to the listening public? The coup was engineered by the United States. So it was basically a foreign instigated coup that put the hand-picked puppets of a foreign government into the administration, into political power in Kiev. The people that the foreign government, being the USA, used to accomplish this coup were genuine neo-Nazis. Since before World War II, there have been rabid Ukrainians against Russians, against the Soviet Union, against communists. And these guys under Stefan Bandera during the Second World War, as soon as the German Nazis occupied Ukraine, these are the guys that went running out with flowers and bread and bacon and stuff to the Nazis, welcoming them as liberators. And they were the henchmen of the German Nazis in committing the most worst massacres, Bobby R. Here in Donetsk, there's a mine called the 4-4 Mine. 75,000 human beings got thrown down this 300-meter deep pit to their deaths in two years that the Germans occupied the city of Donetsk. I mean, these guys, these the Bandera, OUN, these guys were worse than the worst of the Nazi SS. They were Ukrainians that killed Ukrainians. And there was no way that the people of Donbass, which are most staunchly communist area in the whole Soviet Union, for real, there was no way that they were going to live under any kind of administration that had anything to do with them. You know, I mean, they still have memories. There's still, you know, or at least there certainly was in 2014. And I've interviewed some of them, people that were alive when the German Nazis came here and did their work with the help of the Bandera Ukrainian neo-Nazis. How soon after the coup itself were these offenses towards the Donbass and Lugansk areas that you alluded to earlier in our interview? Well, after Odessa on the 2nd of May, the lines were very clear cut at that point. And the people in Donbass started protesting. People in Slavyatsk were protesting the same way that Odessa had. So the Ukrainian army started coming. They came into the Donetsk Oblast, uh, Mm -hmm. the area of the eastern, southeastern Ukraine, and civilians stood there. I mean, there's videos of it you can find putting their hands on BMPs, armored personnel carriers. And I mean, they got ran over. They got shot down. They were just trying to stop this armored vehicles with their bodies and they were getting killed. And so they had no choice but to stand up and resist. When did they announce the resistance? Did they ever announce like formally? 
there wasn't really a, a formal date. I mean, mm -hmm. the formal date is May the 11th. You know, thousands of people had already gathered. The Vostok Battalion had already started organizing. But May the 11th was the referendum. Got it. And that was the day that they said, here's the vote. By then, they had kicked out the Ukrainian army, the Ukrainian cops, the Ukrainian SBU. And people were basically autonomous in the Donetsk area. They said, we're holding the referendum today. They did it. You know, it was in clear plastic boxes. It was really a legit vote. 90% or something, 89% of the people voted against staying under Ukraine and the uh, new neo-Nazi government. Then that's when they declared the Donetsk People's Republic and the Lugansk People's Republic. So this referendum drew the lines very clearly. From what I understand you're saying is they have a very clear understanding of a history of German Nazi invasion of the 1940s and the results of that in their particular part of the world. And they could see the writing on the wall shortly after the coup by the objective actions of these far right, right militias. And they had their referendum accordingly. And since then, they have been fighting to maintain that sovereignty since May 11th. Exactly. I mean, the thing you got to understand is that Stefan Bandera and the OUN, what's the OUN stand for? According to Wikipedia, the OUN stood for the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, a bunch of right-wing groups in Ukraine, totaled some 300,000 in 1944. The paramilitary wing was the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. The OUN, which was like the uh, anti-Soviet, anti-communists, when the German Nazis came in, they immediately welcomed them, collaborated with them, did the dirtiest of their dirty work. After the German Nazis got kicked out by the Red Army, a lot of these dudes ended up going underground. A lot of them went to the United States and Canada. Christia Freeland, the assistant prime minister of Canada, her grandfather was a Nazi collaborator in Ukraine back then who moved to Canada after the war. But these Banderistes, they continued fighting. And after the war, the CIA was funding and arming and directing and training these dudes as anti-communist subversives and guerrillas. And in Ukraine, after the Second World War, the Russians, you know, it was kind of like a guerrilla war in Ukraine for another five or 10 years after the war, hunting down these OUN bandits, Banderistes. So when the coup happened, and all of a sudden in Maidan, they start seeing these neo-Nazis with, you know, portraits of Bandera and the red and black OUN flag, they knew exactly who it was. I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, a swastika to a Russian-speaking pro-communist is as abhorrent as it is to a Jew. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. 25 million people died in, in Russia. Exactly, bro. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, when these dudes with swastika flags and swastika tattoos and Sig Highland in the streets right after the Maidan coup, they didn't have to say, well, what's your policies? They knew exactly. They knew exactly. What was the derogatory word that they also used, these far right wing groups that was called the cockroaches of Eastern? Yeah, it's uh, the uh, Colorado's. Colorado's, that's what it was. Yeah, so it's because uh, there's that this language uh, as well that was part of this neo Nazi profile that was so. Yeah, uh, the Colorado beetle is like a uh, kind of orange and black striped beetle 
which orange and black is also the colors of the St. George ribbon, which is like the pro-Russian. But the Colorado beetle is something that you find in the garden. You know, it eats your tomatoes, it eats your peppers and stuff like that. So basically, if you're gardening and you see a Colorado beetle, you squash it right away, you know. I mean, they had the sayings, uh, yeah. what was it? Moscals na zanoj, you know, put the... Moscaliv na noji. Put the Russians on the knives. You know, these are sayings that are based on what Bandera and them actually did to tens or hundreds of thousands of people a lifetime ago right here, you know, so they knew exactly what these dudes were talking about. Understood, understood. One last question, just a demographic question for framing. What would you say is the population of the Lugansk and the Donetsk areas separately in Donbass in its entirety? What is the number of people that we're talking about? And, and also for Crimea, do you know the population size? I don't know all of that. I mean, you can look that up on the internet. I know yeah. that the DPR is about two and a half million people for the Donetsk People's Republic. Lugansk, less than that, probably another million. And, you know, just guessing, but you should check it out for yourself. But I think that Crimea is probably three million. Okay. So it's about three and a half million in the east and then three million in the Crimea area. But the only one that I know is for sure is that it's a little more than two million in the Donetsk People's Republic. Perfect. Thank you for the time and the information. And we will look forward to staying in contact with you. Sure. Thanks a lot, Pedro. Uh, good luck to all good people. Uh, may God protect the innocent. And may the rest of us get everything we deserve. <laughs> I want to say thank you again. I really respect and appreciate your professionalism, your dedication, you know, following up. You know, that that shows that you're taking this seriously. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I like guys that are good at their jobs, man. Respect to you, bro. Hey, may your family, may your friends, may Donetsk and the resistance be safe. We'll see you next week. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on KOOP.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Navity. All his own love 